sermon text for this morning is John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And there we read, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And as they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And we have uh, learned in our study in this gospel so far about the ministry of John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist was sent by God to announce the arrival of the Messiah, of the promised Christ. And just like when an important person attends an event, someone usually comes out first to give an introduction to declare that this special, important person is about to take the stage. Well, John was that announcer. He announced to all of Israel that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, was about to begin his public ministry. But how did John uh, get this role? Why is he the one who was announcing Jesus' arrival? Well, we know from the other Gospels that John the Baptist had godly parents named Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were both of the tribe of Levi. Uh, They were elderly and childless, but we know that for them this was especially heartbreaking because they earnestly wanted children. One day, we read that Zechariah was in the temple in Jerusalem, and as a Levite, he was performing his priestly duties. The angel Gabriel appeared and, and spoke to him, saying, and listen to this prophecy from Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to, their, to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Well, months later, the angel, the angel Gabriel, also visited Mary and told her that she would conceive and bear a son. She was to call his name Jesus. And these two pregnant women, these relatives, 
when they met, Elizabeth said to Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb, she was speaking of John, leapt for joy. We read here that there was a connection between Jesus and John the Baptist. It was a connection that existed even before the two were born. The Holy Spirit had created a bond between Jesus and John while they were still in their mother's womb. Two children, roughly the same age, yet they were each born for different purposes. John was born to announce Jesus' ministry. Jesus, we know, was born to die for the sins of his people. And when the time came that God had appointed for Jesus to begin his public ministry, we read in the Gospels that John went first. He went first and began announcing what God was about to do through the promised Messiah. John was like the old covenant prophets who spoke from God, and he declared to the people what God was about to do. And he did this primarily through what was known as a baptism of repentance. John's baptism was different from the baptism that we administer in the New Covenant today. We read about John's baptism in Mark chapter 1, beginning of verse 4. That John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. We see that John's baptism was uh, rooted in the washing ceremonies of the Old Testament. And by coming out, therefore, to be baptized by John, the people were publicly acknowledging that they were sinners. And, and this washing symbolized their repentance. They were repenting in preparation for the arrival of the Messiah. In essence, we might say that John's baptism was a wake-up call. John was publicly declaring to Israel, to all the people, that they were not ready to receive the Messiah, that everyone in Israel had to repent, not just the Gentiles, but the Jews as well. All people are unclean when they are compared to the spotless, perfect Lamb of God. And then one day we read in the Gospels that Jesus came to John and was baptized by him in the Jordan River. Jesus submitted to John's baptism, not because Jesus was sinful and needed to repent of sin, but he submitted to John's baptism in order, as Jesus said, to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus was the obedient son who came to fulfill everything that was required in the law. Jesus was the second Adam who came to obey God in all the things that God required of his people. And then after his baptism, Jesus began his public ministry. He began to call disciples and to preach and to perform signs and miracles. And, and John continued his public ministry. He, too, continued baptizing. So John and Jesus were working together, working toward the same goals. They were of the same mind. They each had disciples. They were baptizing and calling people to repentance and faith. 
We read, though, one difference. Jesus himself did not baptize anyone. This is specifically stated in John chapter 4, verse 2, but his disciples were baptizing. And so this point in the Gospel of John, there were these two groups of disciples, one led by Jesus and the other by John. And we read in our text this morning in John chapter 3, verse 22, about the group that the Lord Jesus led. It says there that after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. But John and his disciples were also baptizing. Verses 23 through 24, we read that John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and, and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. So these two groups working toward the same goal, working in different parts of Israel, they were doing the same thing, baptizing. The only difference we know, according to verse uh, chapter 4, verse 2, is that Jesus himself did not baptize anyone. And, and this is where the problem began. Because as Jesus and his disciples began to gain more fame and more followers than John, we see in our text this morning that uh, John's disciples became resentful and they became embittered. Uh, they were upset that Jesus was getting more attention, more honor, more glory than their rabbi, than John was. We read in verse 25 that a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, uh, we don't know the specifics of this discussion. It was probably a discussion about which baptism was superior, whether it was the baptism of John or the baptism that Jesus' disciples administered, you know, which one was better, which one was necessary. could have also been a discussion about how these baptisms related to the Old Testament uh, washings. We don't know the details, but we see that the discussion did trigger a sense of envy in John's disciples because they realized that more people were seeking out Jesus than John and they became envious. We read what they did. Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, one commentator really clearly explained some of the subtle problems with the response of John's disciples. We see that in the spirit of jealousy and anger, John's disciples purposely avoided even mentioning the name of Jesus. As they saw it, Jesus and John were rivals. They were competitors. That's how they perceived the situation. And they also... We see in verse 26, uh, seemed annoyed with John, their rabbi. John had been heralding Jesus, declaring him to be the Messiah, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And, and John's disciples were now thinking, uh, Rabbi, you did your job a little too well. Now fewer people are following us and more people are, are going to him. And they perceive that as a problem. 
And notice also how John's disciples exaggerated the situation. They said, all are going to him. Rabbi, if this keeps up, no one's going to be coming to see us. Everyone's going to be going to Jesus. Again, they perceive this as a problem. You know, it's easy, loved ones, to see here the sinful attitude of John's disciples, isn't it? It's an attitude that so often characterizes us and that affects our contentment and our uh, gratitude. Jonathan Edwards once defined envy, this attitude that John's disciples had. He defined envy as a sense of dissatisfaction and opposition to the prosperity and the happiness of others. This attitude reveals covetousness, the sinful dissatisfaction with what God has given us, and it also reveals our lust for that which belongs to others. Envious people are unable to rejoice with those who rejoice because they're thinking, well, why don't I also have that much? Why don't I also have that thing? Why don't I also feel that way? When we are envious of others' blessings, we cannot take joy in their abundance, and we cannot truly love them or what our Heavenly Father is doing in their lives because we're constantly thinking about ourselves and, and what we lack. We're envious. And we also not only become envious of others, but this feeling, this emotion, this sinful tendency um, is, is the groundwork for our growing distrust of God himself. And when this feeling, this emotion takes hold, we start thinking things like, why did God only give me this much? And why does my brother over there have more than I do? Oh, it's because God does not love me as much. God does not care for me as much. He's holding out on me in some way. If you think about it, this was the sin that led Adam and Eve into breaking the covenant. If you think about the Garden of Eden, the way it's described in Genesis and, and throughout the scriptures, this paradise was perfect. Adam and Eve lacked nothing. It was filled with delicious fruit. It was a garden of abundance, paradise beyond imagination. But it was that one tree that Satan focused their attention upon and got them to feel as though God was depriving them of some good. Got them to feel as though they were missing out on something and it was God's fault. See, all these emotions, loved ones, are, are bound up in our hearts as well. We all struggle with a sense of dissatisfaction and, and opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others. We struggle with covetousness, with the sinful dissatisfaction with what God has given us. And we so often lust after that which belongs to others. And all of these emotions, again, are not just directed towards others, but they are ultimately directed toward God because it ultimately reveals our dissatisfaction with our Heavenly Father. So how can we fight against these sinful thoughts and feelings? Well, we learn three important principles from John the Baptist. He turns to his disciples and he says first that they needed to think theologically. And you and I this morning, if we are to fight against these sinful thoughts, we must first think theologically. Notice John the Baptist's response to his disciples in 
verse 27 through 28. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John here points out that his disciples are thinking in very earthly terms, man-centered terms. They were seeking their own glory, their own fame, and their own importance. But John points out that everything we have comes from God. See, God has assigned each of us a place in his eternal plan. Each of us are God's servants in this world. And some servants he has entrusted with much, and some with little, but it's all according to God's sovereignty and God's wisdom. It's not by chance or by fate. It's not arbitrary, but it's according to his wisdom and his good purposes. Richard Phillips explains that John the Baptist's point in teaching this to his disciples was that we must be content ourselves with uh, the place and the provision that our sovereign God has placed us in and the things that he has given to each of us, seeking only to be faithful to him in the areas that he has placed us. You know, instead of playing up the importance of our own deeds and our own fame and our own glory and seeking to outdo the success of others, we are to receive our work from God and, and accomplish it faithfully. Let us think theologically, right, biblically. This is the antidote to envy and strife among Christians. If, if we have great gifts, we need to acknowledge that they were given to us by God for his service. If we have modest gifts, these two were given by God for his service. The Apostle Paul asks a great question along these lines. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Everything that we have comes from our Heavenly Father. James reminds us of this very thing. He writes, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. See, loved ones, having this perspective causes us to focus on the good gifts that we have received from God and not to feel as though we are lacking something or God is holding out on giving us what is good because for some reason he might not love us or care for us. Ultimately, you know what it does is it, it takes the attention off of us, the focus off, off of us, and it causes us to think about God, to think theologically. And this is why John the Baptist reminds his disciples that you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. See, John the Baptist, way back in chapter 1, as we learned in our study in chapter 1, he repeated to his disciples, I am not the Christ. I am the one who is heralding his arrival. Loved ones, we need to remind ourselves of this. I am not the Christ. You are not the Christ. There is only one Christ, and he is the Lord Jesus. And in our lives, we can easily run into the danger of thinking that we are the center of the universe, that everything depends upon us, upon our ministries and our successes. And so 
We constantly need to confess that I am not the Christ. It's not all on my shoulders. It's not all up to me. I am simply called to be faithful in what God has called me to do. As parents and as as grandparents, as we pray for our children and our grandchildren, as we seek to minister to them and to be faithful in our lives, it takes the pressure and the stress off of thinking that my child's salvation, my grandchild's salvation is all up to me. Loved ones, it's up to God. He has called us to faithfully use the means that he has given us and to trust that he will use us in the way that he has called us to. We learn also from John, secondly, not only that we need to have uh, uh, the right theology to think theologically, but we need to have the right perspective. We read in verse 29, John says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, John uses an illustration from a Hebrew wedding to explain how he rightly understood his role in redemptive history, his role in God's working in the world. He said that he was like the best man, the friend of the bridegroom. And in this illustration, Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. The bride then must be brought to the bridegroom. According to one theologian, William Barclay, he notes that historically this was one of the primary responsibilities of the best man in ancient Hebrew weddings. The friend of the bridegroom, he writes, the shoshben in Hebrew, had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out uh, the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together. And he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and he let him in. And he went away rejoicing, for his task was completed. So that's the role of the best man. He's there to do everything possible to make sure the wedding goes as planned. He's not just standing there thinking, hey, I want more attention. Why isn't anybody looking at me? Why is everybody looking at the bride and, and the bridegroom? Uh, I want to be the focus for a moment. No, a true best man is happiest when he is serving the bridegroom, his best friend. And that's why John says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John is explaining, I have been faithful in doing what God has called me to do. I have brought the bride and the bridegroom together. I have faithfully heralded the Messiah. I have baptized people in preparation for his arrival. My greatest joy comes from knowing that God is using me in some small way to accomplish his will in the world. That's where John found joy and contentment. Friends, do we have this perspective? You know, much of our culture is me-centered. 
through the use of social media, people are seeking attention and, and fame. We have even things called selfies, right? Think about what that says about us. The Christian life is very different from a me-centered culture. The Christian life requires a completely different perspective. We live to put the focus on Christ and not on ourselves. So William Carey, the missionary, was born in 1761. He was a missionary to India, and as he lay dying, he turned to a friend and said, when I am gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. This is the right perspective for each of us to seek after. So we're instructed in the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, isn't it? It's a question that helps us frame the purpose for our existence. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end, we read there, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We learn from this question and answer and from the Bible as a whole that this is not just a purpose that we need to fulfill slavishly, but we learn that we will only enjoy life when we make much of God, when we take the focus and the attention off ourselves and place it upon God, because this is what we were designed to do, loved ones. We were designed to worship God and to find our joy in him, ultimately to enjoy him forever. And anything that falls short of that will always lead to frustration and ruin and dissatisfaction. John the Baptist had the correct view when he insisted that the focus needed to be taken off of him and placed on Christ, on the bridegroom. And that's what we see in our third point the way to fight against envy, against discontent and the selfish ambition that John's disciples had is to focus on exalting Christ. To focus on exalting Christ. John says these famous words in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. And one translation of this verse reads, he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Jesus Fame and glory must continue to grow. Mine must continue to diminish. Loved ones, note the must word that John uses. He understands that this is all in accord with God's plan. See, he understands that he's like the herald who announces the arrival of the king and then kind of backs away into the corner and lets the king take the spotlight. Let the king take all the attention. I want to ask this morning, perhaps you're asking yourself, why? Why should we spend all our lives exalting Christ? Well, simply put, the ultimate answer is because he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. We read in the book of Revelation, the apostle John describes this heavenly glory that Christ receives. We read in Revelation chapter 5, beginning of verse 11, Then I looked... And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Loved ones, we can never make too much of Christ or give him too much honor or too much praise or too much glory. He is worthy of far more than we could ever offer. So we are to extend our lives in exalting him through our words, through our thoughts, through our deeds, through our worship, because he is worthy. But notice also, loved ones, the reason he's exalted in heaven, as we read there in Revelation. He's exalted as the lamb who was slain. You know what that means? It means that he was slain for you and for me, that he shed his blood in order that our sins might be forgiven. And so in a way, in a way, we are exalting Christ. We are lifting him up because he has lifted us up. When we were dead in sin, unworthy, and, and we were without hope, Christ gave his life in order that we might be lifted up and be made children of God and receive an eternal inheritance. So that's why, loved ones, we join with the heavenly hosts in praise to Christ and praise to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. To him be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would use us for your glory, that you would use us to make Christ known in this world. Grant us faithfulness in the big and in the small things in life. May we always say with our words and through our actions and in our hearts, Christ must increase, I must decrease. We ask you to write your word on our hearts. Lord, you have declared that while the grass withers and the flowers fall, your word endures forever. And so we ask that you would cause this word to be implanted deep within our hearts, that the word that we have heard preached this day would not be snatched away by the evil one, nor fall on hard ground, uh, on unrepentant hearts, but instead we ask that you would soften our hearts, that we may truly profit from what we have heard. Hear us as we pray to you, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.